0: as we reflect together on Psalm 68. Psalm 68 today in our text of Scripture. In several weeks, our brother Frankie Johnson is going to backtrack for us a little bit and preach Psalm 67. But today, Psalm 68, indeed Psalm 65, 66, 67, and 68 are a collection of psalms that belong together in this response of offering a blessing to the Lord. And you see the way in which these Psalms offer this blessing. Just note how Psalm 65 begins, praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall praise or shall vows be performed. Look at Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God all the earth, sing the glory of His name, give to Him glorious praise. And Psalm 68 likewise begins with this call of of God and His majesty to arise and to destroy enemies. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. These Psalms, Psalm 65, 66, 67, and 68, as Old Testament professor at Southern Seminary, James Hamilton, shows us, is a response to the nation of Israel's need for God that we see noted in Psalm 61 through 64, which are prompted by what we saw at the conclusion, or actually through the majority of last summer, to the end of last summer in these laments by David as he was being chased by Saul. So if you read Psalm 52 through 59, these are psalms of lament of, on behalf of David and his sorrow and his anguish of being chased by Saul. And then Psalm 61, through Psalm 64, these communications on behalf of David of his deep need for God. And because God responds to the cries of his people, then we have this collection of psalms here in Psalm 65 through 68 that call us to bless the Lord, to give thanks to the Lord. And this psalm today in Psalm 68 calls believers to celebrate that God's kingdom has come and that God's kingdom will come in might and victory. We don't know the specific setting for this psalm. We're not sure of the specific even author of this psalm, even though we do have a note here that says it's a psalm of David. We don't know exactly what the reference is, but there are a number of common themes throughout Psalm 68 that we find in other parts of the Old Testament and here David is reflecting upon the kingdom of God that has come and he concludes with calling you and me to give thanks to God for the kingdom that is to come and the kingdom that is And the kingdom that will be are two kingdoms in might and victory. So we begin here in Psalm 68. In verses 1 through 3, we see as a prayer for God as a divine warrior. You see the psalmist reflect upon God. Give praise, give thanks to this God who is this divine, reigning, conquering King, hear these words God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. If you've read through the Pentateuch, you might catch the reference there. Sounds familiar to a prayer that Moses offered as the Ark of the Covenant was leaving. Verse 2, as smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But notice the juxtaposition between the evil and the righteous. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God they shall be jubilant with joy. The image that we see painted for us at the beginning of this psalm is of one of God as a divine warrior, a warrior who works on behalf of his people. As the Ark of the Covenant would leave and make its way toward the Promised Land, as a nation of Israel would make their way from the wilderness into Canaan land, as they moved into Canaan land. And we see this narrative portrayed for us through Joshua and this conquest. We see God serving as this warrior king, establishing his kingdom and doing so on behalf of his covenantal people. And this is the hope that David here is expressing in the Lord this is the praise that David is expressing in this God who is acting on behalf of his people and so we see these images as the nation of Israel stood at the pre- precipice of Canaan land on the other side of the Jordan River and they made their way into the Promised Land as they cross the Jordan River on dry ground. They enter right into Jericho and they immediately begin to conquer and totally destroy and bring about destruction upon those who are the enemies of God. And so this is what you see recorded in verse 2, as smoke is driven away, so shall you drive them away. This is what God does on behalf of His people. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. Yet, verse 3, the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Jubilant with joy... Not because they entered into the promised land and there they found sweeter dates. Jubilant with joy because what God has accomplished on their behalf. And friends, it reminds us of not only the kingdom that God was establishing through his people in the promised land, this too reminds us and points us toward this kingdom that is yet to come. For in the same way that God established his kingdom in the Old Testament will be the same way in which God establishes his forever kingdom when Jesus returns. And the same image of this divine warrior conquering king that we see here in Psalm 68 will be the same image of this same God who comes in complete, total might and victory in Revelation 19, 20 and 21. For when Jesus comes and establishes his forever reign and kingdom upon this earth, all those who stood in opposition to him, all the enemies of God will melt like the wax melts before the fire. And yet, all those who by faith have trusted in God's word, in the promises of God's word, know what we will do for all of eternity. We will sing the praises of Zion for all of eternity. We will shout, worthy is the lamb for all of eternity. David reminds us, Psalm 68, verses 1 through 3, of the praise that is due to this warrior conquering king as he works on behalf of his covenantal people. But notice verses 4, 5, and 6. David offers a praise for God's care. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him, father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles a solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. David is reflecting upon God's gracious acts on behalf of his people for the way in which God providentially cared for his people when they were the ones who were in poverty. Anybody remember a period of time in the nation of Israel like that? We've just been going through a book called the Book of Exodus, and we've reflected on this narrative. Who were the nation of Israel down in, in Egypt? Were they a wealthy, prosperous, conquering, warlike group of people? No, in some ways they were like the fatherless. They were weak. They were impoverished. They had nothing. They were enslaved. And yet, even in that moment, who cared for the nation of Israel? God. God. You might remember the cry of the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 2. Hear this cry of the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. And then listen to God's response in verse 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And what does God do? Verse 25, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And what is the narrative of the book of Exodus following there? God raises up for the people of Israel a leader. What was his name? Moses. Moses. And what would Moses do for the nation of Israel? He would lead them out of slavery. And we see this incredible image of the way in which God so providentially cares for his people, even when his people find themselves in the most difficult of all circumstances. See, friends, one of the reasons why I love the Psalms As the Psalms paint for us this myriad of expressions with the Lord. We see through the Psalms what we see in this first three verses of Psalm 68 of this conquering, reigning God who's working on behalf of his people. Israel is strong. They're they're warlike. They're conquering. It doesn't seem as though anything can stop them. And then, in the same psalm, or in another psalm, like the collection of psalms from Psalm 52 through Psalm 59, we get the laments. And what do these psalms remind us? That our journey with the Lord, that as we journey with God, we too will experience each of these expressions in life. A call to come and follow Yahweh, a call to give your life in obedience to God is not a call to come and participate in a religion where if you trust in God, everything in your life is going to be okay. Reject that image of Christianity, but embrace the image of Christianity that says, that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can declare even there, God, you are with me. You are with us. And David in this Psalm calls us to give this praise to God for he is the one who providentially cares so well for his people. And we hear the words of Jesus. If God cares so well for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, how much more shall he care for you and me? And now we come to the heart of this Psalm that begins here in verse seven, which is a reflection on the very character of this warrior king. And David is going to take us on a journey of how God has responded, the ways in which God has responded in establishing his kingdom reign among his people. He's going to take us on three primary moves in this text. The first move we see is here in verses 7 through 10, as he takes us on a journey from the wilderness into Canaan, land, into the promised land. Listen to how David responds in, a, in reflection of God's character. Oh God... When you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earthquake, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai before God, the God of Israel rain in abundance. O oh God, you shed abroad, you restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it in your goodness. O oh God, you provided for the needy. Do you hear the language of the wilderness here? What was the wilderness like for the people of God? God did provide for them in the wilderness, but it wasn't a pleasant journey, was it? It was a hard journey, it was a difficult journey, a journey that was uh, found the nation of Israel falling further into rebellion against God. And yet, what did God do? David said, you marched through the wilderness with us. Was was Israel in the wilderness by themselves? Were they left alone? I know at moments they felt like they were left alone. But no, God was with the nation of Israel. He provided in marvelous ways, water and food. You know those stories for the nation of, of Israel. And this is what David is recounting of how God brought the nation of Israel from nothing to everything. Your flock, verse 10, found a dwelling in it and your goodness, O God, you provided for who? The needy. You provided for those of us who had nothing but you, David says. He takes us on this journey of God with his people from the wilderness Into and then notice what he does here in verses 11 through 14. He takes us on a journey of reflecting upon God, actually bringing the people into the promised land and establishing the promised land for them. The conquest, the Lord gives the word. The woman who announces the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. The, though the young men lie among the sheep falls, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. Now there is a lot in verses 11 through 14 that we are not quite sure of. For example, example where is the snow that falls on Zalman? Well, you could take guesses in terms of what mountain perhaps David is is reflecting upon exactly what David is is talking about. For example, that second half of verse 12 and into verse 13. Not exactly sure, but we do know that this is an image of, of conquest. David is reflecting upon what God has done in establishing his kingdom promises to his covenantal people and giving them a land. And as Israel entered into the promised land... Verse 12, the kings of the army, they did what? They fled. Think about Joshua with the people at Ai. What happens at Ai? Complete, utter, total destruction. And who led the people in that march? God. Think of the well-known story at, at Jericho. Who's ready to sign up for that army dictate? I think you're crazy. General, march around the city, what? The walls will do what? Blow the horn and what? Who gave them the victory at Jericho? God gave the people the victory at Jericho as they moved into the land as as God had promised. And what happened? The men brought back the spoils of of war, and the women divided that like the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. It's an expression of, of the wealth that God provided for the nation of Israel as God was establishing his kingdom reign among his people and in a land that God had promised. So we see the journey coming through the wilderness to the promised land. We see the conquest of the promised land. But then notice verses 15 through 18. We see God establishing Jerusalem as the epicenter of the place from which his very presence would abide. In which the people of God would come and worship an encounter God Himself. Verse 15, O mountain of God, O mountain of Bashan. We're not exactly sure what that mountain is. More than likely, a reference to the Golan Heights in the northern part of Israel. This is the highest mountain in, in, in Israel. O many peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan. It is indeed a mountain range in the northern part of Israel. And by the way, it's interesting here. What is is David saying by bringing up this reference uh, to this northern mountain range in Israel? If you were going to establish a great city, a great place in antiquity, where would you want that place to be? At the highest point? A midway point or the lowest point? Thank you. Y'all are making me nervous. The highest. What are the benefits of the highest point? You can see it's much harder for your enemies to attack. So from a worldly standpoint, where would be the natural place for God to establish his very presence in the promised land? At the highest mountain, at a midway mountain, or the lowest mountain? The highest mountain. But God confounds the wisdom of mankind for his own wisdom. And where does God establish his place? In Jerusalem. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, o, mount, o many peak mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many peak mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. He paints this image of this jealousy between the Golan Heights and, and Mount Moriah and, and Jerusalem as if the Golan Heights are looking down at at the mountain Mount Moriah and, and having expressing this this jealousy I'm I'm greater I'm I'm more mighty I'm stronger I'm taller what in the world is going on verse 17 the chariots of God are twice 10,000 thousands upon thousands the Lord is among them Sinai is now in the sanctuary You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Why does God need the strongest, the biggest, and the best of what man can offer when he himself has the greatest of all? What do the Golan Heights have to offer God, is what David is saying. For God himself has twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands, the Lord is among them. The Golan Heights are nothing apart from the very presence of God. David is recounting, the Ark of the Covenant being brought into Jerusalem. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. He's imaging the Ark of the Covenant as this mountain that is now in the middle of the sanctuary. The very presence of God is now established in Jerusalem, is what David is telling us. And what is the ultimate expression of that establishment of God in Jerusalem? God's incarnation through his son Jesus. See what the text says, verse 18? You ascended from where? On high. What ultimately makes Jerusalem what she is? What makes Jerusalem what she is is the fact that the very character and nature of the very being of God Himself is there. And how did God do it? He ascended. And in the same way, friends, God has done the same thing for you and for me, His covenantal people. This isn't only a reflection on what God has done, what God did do with His Old Testament people, Paul takes this same imagery and changes a word or a phrase in the book of Ephesians and reminds us that this is what God is still doing for his people. First and foremost, he has done it with his incarnation. He ascended from on high. God came to you and me in the incarnation but God continues his triumphal procession in your life and in my life in establishing the kingdom of God at this very present moment. How? Paul will tell us in Ephesians chapter 4, and using this same language from verse 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train. And this text says, receiving gifts among men, Ephesians says, and giving gifts among men. Man. How is God at this moment continuing to give us His presence and pour out Himself on you and me? Yes, through the presence of His Holy Spirit, but by also giving to you and me gifts that we use as we live in this victorious and mighty kingdom of God. We too are to be like the nation of Israel who are a conquering reigning, ruling, group of people, declaring the goodness and the greatness of God to all around, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Friends, to every one of you this morning that are here who by faith have trusted in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has given to you. He has given to me, he has given to us, Gifts that we are to use in establishing the kingdom of God. How is the kingdom of God established among us? Every time the word of God goes forth, the kingdom is being built. Every time a person comes to faith in Christ, the kingdom of God is being built. David reflects, Upon God's work among and toward his covenantal people. And as he reflects upon God's work among and toward his covenantal people. He yet again, here in verses 19 19 and 20, gives us a call to praise God. For God is caring for his people. Look at verses 19 and 20. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord, belong deliverances from death. David can't help but yet again offer adoration and thanksgiving and blessing. Because he knows he serves of God who is continually working on behalf of his people. And what is God doing on behalf of his people? Notice what he's doing. He is providing salvation. Friends, this is what ultimately Paul is saying to us in Ephesians 1 and 2 as he thinks about the unity of the church and calls us to that unity in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is reflecting upon the the goodness and the greatness of God. God's promises to his Old Testament saints in Ephesians chapter 1, his promises to the New Testament people of God, the Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2. For we were those people who were what? Dead in our trespasses and our sins. But God saved us, did he not? He made us alive. He is a God of salvation, a God of deliverance. And David says that act of God should cause us as his people to give him blessing, to declare that blessing to all around us. And then David yet again, as he did at the beginning in verses 21, 22, and 23, gives us a statement concerning God's divine Warlikeness, God's being a divine warrior look at these words but God will strike the heads of his enemies the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways the Lord said I will bring them back from uh, Bashan I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that you may strike your feet in their blood that their tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe now, it's interesting that it reaches back to Bashan here again. For those of you who have been to Israel, you've been to the northern parts, to this area, to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Do you remember the image of Caesarea Philippi? What was the backdrop of Caesarea Philippi? Was it a, was it a place of worship for Yahweh, or was it a place of worship for pagan gods? A place of worship for pagan gods. You can go to Caesarea Philippi today and see the remnants of all of uh, these images of the establishment of this pagan worship. Of course, it's interesting that that is the place in which Jesus looks at his disciples against the backdrop of this narrative, and he says to them, who do you say that I am? And look what David is saying. All of these pagan images, all of these pagan warriors that have been created by the hands of mankind, they are nothing before God. Or as Paul says, all of our sinfulness, whatever might we might think we have before God, it's like what? Filthy rags. Good for nothing. Not strong enough to accomplish anything. Worthless. And as David looks at that image and he juxtaposes it against the might and the victory of God. Look what he says that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from their foe. It's an image of God's total, complete victory over anyone who might seek to challenge him. And this leads David and the conclusion of this psalm to not only reflect upon the kingdom that God has established, the kingdom that God is currently establishing, David now points us toward the future of the hope that is to come when God finally, completely, and totally establishes His kingdom reign. And notice the joyful anticipation that establishment is for the people of God. Verse 24, Your possession is seen, O God. The procession is seen, O God. The procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last. Between them, virgins playing tambourines. Bless God and the great congregation. The Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them, in the lead, the princes of Judah and their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali, an image that all the people of God will join in. Verse 28, summon your power, O God. The power, O God, by which you have worked for us, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush has hastened to stretch out her hands to God. O oh, kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice, ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God." This image that David gives us concerning the joyful anticipation of God establishing his kingdom is an image that David himself never experienced. Isaiah would too write about this expression. Jeremiah would write about this expression, but it was an expression that even Isaiah and Jeremiah themselves would never experience. It's an expression that John the Revelator writes concerning, but it's an expression that even John himself never experienced. But it is an expression that David one day will experience. It is an expression that one day Isaiah and Jeremiah will experience. It is an expression one day that John will experience. It's an expression that my grandmother hoped in. It's an expression my grandmother loved. My faithful Meemaw, who all of my growing up years desired for all of her kids and grandkids to love Jesus. But she died four years ago, five years ago, at 89 years old and she never got to experience it. But watch it. It is an experience that she too will one day enjoy and comprehend and know and exult in and joy in. That image that we see given here at the conclusion of Psalm 68 is the same image that Isaiah gave for us in Isaiah chapter 2 when he says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, what mountain is that? The Golan Heights, the mountain of Bashan, or Mount Moriah, Jerusalem? It's the same mountain. That David speaks of in Psalm 68, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up from above the hills, and the nation shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's the same image that John the Revelator saw when he penned these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, pass away. God will do what God has already done. He will be a ruling, conquering king who destroys his, em- his enemies. He will be a ruling, conquering king in might and victory that establishes a forever promised land for his people, and he will be a ruling Conquering, mighty, victorious king who will forever and always give his, his presence to his people. For God will be with them. When? When Jesus returns. This psalm establishes in our hearts a reason for you and me to praise God that he has established his kingdom and that he will one day finally establish his kingdom in might and victory. And we join our voices with the voices of the church throughout history in declaring, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the kingdom of God. We thank you that through Christ, you have brought us into your kingdom, and there we live in the benefits of your kingdom. We walk among you, live among you, our ruling, conquering, mighty, victorious king who is providing for us. We hear the words of Scripture as you declare, God, even this day, that we can cast our care on you because you care for us. We thank you for the way that you providentially care for us. And we thank you, God, for the way that you have providentially, victoriously conquered on behalf of us, conquering our sin and the giving of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we look forward to that day, God, When you send your son, Jesus, and you establish that forever kingdom. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and reflect and respond to the preaching of God's word? Would you give thanks to God this morning that he, by faith, through Christ, has brought you into his kingdom. (coughs) Would you thank God this morning for all the ways that he cares for you? Would you thank him for the gift of family? Would you thank him for the gift of this congregation? Would you thank him for the gift of mercy and grace this morning? Would you thank him that he continues to establish your life at this very moment? Friend, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, please know that when the Bible speaks of God's enemies, it's a reference to to you to you who reject Jesus as Lord. And yet this morning, the truth of this text is you don't have to remain an enemy of God. Would you trust in Christ this morning? Would you hear from this text of scripture, the joy that God establishes in the hearts and the lives of those who by faith have trusted in him and live in his reign? Would you hear the joy that it will be to live in God's forever, glorious reign for eternity? Would you trust in Christ today? For the scripture says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In just a few moments, we're gonna stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. And as we stand in response to the preaching of God's word, if you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. It'll be a great opportunity for you to come to one of us and we'll be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ and how to have the joy of Christ. But friend, don't feel like you have to come forward and speak to one of us. Please feel free to turn to someone seated next to you for there are plenty of people seated around you that would also delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Secondly, perhaps you'd like for one of us to pray with you that the truth of this psalm might be evident in your life, that you too would rejoice and bless and praise the Lord. We would delight in praying for you that those truths might be evident in your life. And thirdly, Perhaps God has impressed it upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with God. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part, being a member of this faith family. Father, as we stand and sing in response to the preaching of your word, we ask that our response might be pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.